Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be here with you this morning. It is good to be celebrating our graduates. I am excited for them. I'm excited for their next chapter and what that means for them and what it means for their families, what it means for the people that they haven't even encountered yet. So we are continuing in this series, uh, the book of Colossians, and I'm going to be picking up, uh, we're still in Colossians 1, I'm going to keep us in Colossians 1 today, um, we're going to be picking up um, this idea of uh, walking worthy, and um, as we look at the book of Colossians, uh, I think two weeks ago, it was that Russ talked about sort of the nature of identity and how Colossians opens up with this um, concept of identity. And um, there were uh, a number of things that Russ identified, uh, specifically five lies that get tied into identity. Um, what I have is what I am. Uh, my accomplishments are what I am. Um, what other people say about me is who I really am, or I am my worst moment, or I am not measuring up. And when you look at the beginning of Colossians, it's easy to see that Paul, who is potentially <laughs> the writer of Colossians, is addressing ideas of identity. And um, there was a quote um, by David Brenner that came up, and it's this idea that as Christians, we walk in identity, but we often have to be reminded of that identity, and it's easy for us to let that slip. It's easy for us to forget, and so this quote by David Brenner, um, Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely unique in the marketplace of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. Love is our identity, and it's our calling. Neither knowing God or knowing self can progress very far unless it begins with a knowledge of how deeply we are loved by God. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis for our identity. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. And identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. As we dig in this morning, I'm going to look at the early passages in Colossians 1, and we're looking at this idea of being filled by the Spirit of God in order to live in to that identity. So that's what we're going to examine this morning, but I'm actually going to start with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the celebration of milestones of graduation. Thank you for the goodness of summer coming and time together and changes in rhythm. 
Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts this morning about our identity? That whatever words I have put down, that ultimately I would get out of the way and that you would speak to all of our hearts about how deeply we are loved and about the call that is in us to love and about how we encourage one another along in that journey. For each one who's here this morning, we all have narratives that we have heard. We all have ideas about ourselves and about you. Would you speak past those? And would you speak the truth that is your truth about who we are that comes out of that place of deep, deep love for us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we take a look at the beginning of Colossians, um, we see Paul starting out with these words that Russ identified last week as some of Paul's favorites. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then he jumps right in to speak to this church in, in Colossia that Paul actually doesn't have any immediate relationship with. This is, um, a this is located in what is modern-day Turkey, and he has not been there. And so he's doing a couple of things, even at the beginning of his letter. One is he's identifying to them that they are a part of the church, that they are not uh, sort of just out there doing their thing, that they carry an identity, that they are... Uh, faithfully a part of what is becoming the network that is the early church. And he identifies some of the things that make them that. Um, and so we're going to take a look as he speaks to them um, the beginning of Colossians um, verses 1, well, we'll start, we'll start with verse 3 and take it from there. We, thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And then verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So the writer of Colossians is deeply invested in this notion of identity. I personally love Colossians. I find that I come back to it on a regular basis because it is so vivid in its description of who we are based in who Jesus is. The writer of Colossians is wanting to encourage these early believers, but we draw encouragement 
from that same journey. So while I'm going to focus on Colossians 1.9, ultimately, I want to frame it out a little bit by looking at these verses that lead up to it. When we look at these verses and how the writer of Colossians is addressing the church, we see first in verse 3, clear gratitude for who they are. That he thanks God that one, they just exist, that they are this church, and that they are walking faithfully. Walking faithfully means that they are walking in faith and that they are walking in love for all of God's people. It's interesting that even as he identifies this, uh, he throws in sort of this theological sidebar. Um, He says that you are doing this thing um, and that you have love for all God's people, and then he starts to just expound on that. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Faith and love from hope and a true message. So while we know that Paul liked to say grace and peace to you, we also know that he really focused a lot on faith, hope, and love. What's interesting is that here he identifies specifically the faith and love that spring from hope that it's stored up in heaven. I don't know about you, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about hope. I hope it's there when I need it, but I don't actually think a lot about it. I I do think quite a bit about faith, sort of practical, like how am I exercising my faith or how am I engaging my faith? Those are things that I maybe think about a little bit more in, in a tangible way. And when I think about love, I think about what am, I, what am I doing to love? How am I getting out there and loving? Or how am I loving my kids this morning? We're all cranky with one another, and I'm short with them, and am I loving them well? Am I circling back? Am I checking in and making sure they're doing okay? How am I loving? But hope, yeah, you just kind of hope it's there, right? This passage identifies... that faith and hope, faith and love are actually dependent on hope. That that hope is something that resides in heaven. There's a quote by Alistair Wilson, um, a British uh, minister, part of the Anglican uh, Communion and a professor at Cambridge University, and he says this about this particular passage. This text appears to present hope, elpis, as an objective reality, which can be stored up in heaven rather than a description of the subjective attitude of Christian believers. Now, I always thought that hope was a confident expectation of good. That's hope, right? I have a confident expectation of good until I don't have confidence or an expectation. And heaven knows goodness just seems to disappear sometimes. So when those things are something I can't drum up, where does hope go? And if this passage is identifying that our love and our faith can be dependent on hope, 
well then, what, what happens with our love and our faith when our hope melts? I was talking with my dad this week who was in town, and we were talking through some of these concepts, and he said, you know, the thing about hope is you just can't take another step without it. And so it's fierce because we do take another step, but it's hard if you don't have hope. It's hard to just to do anything. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. So when hope is source for the other things that we are doing, what do we do when it melts away? We identify that we have a subjective hope, but this passage identifies that we're actually offered an objective hope, a hope that does not rely on us, a hope that is stored up, not being stored up, but is already stored up. We don't have to come up with this hope. I don't know where you are this morning in your relationship to hope. I don't know whether or not it's something you spend a lot of time thinking about. You may be one of those folks who has a direct line to that warehouse in heaven, and you might get a fresh delivery every morning. That's awesome. You may be in a season of your life where hope has been wrecked and you are hunkered down in the wreckage. Maybe you're somewhere on that spectrum. It can be easy to skip over talking about hope and jump straight to faith and love. But this passage implies that we cannot do that. We have to hold them in tension with one another the theologian John Stott put it this way. Faith is directed towards God. Love towards others, both within the Christian fellowship and beyond it. And hope towards the future, in particularly the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, when we think about it, faith rests on the past, the work of Jesus. Hope looks to the future. Love is the work of the present. And every Christian without exception is a believer, a lover, and a hoper. Faith, hope, and love are these three evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So wherever you are in your relationship to hope, Know that there's a warehouse that is available where your hope does not need to be subjective, where you can ask for a fresh supply. It does not need to be reliant on your circumstances and whether things have panned out the way you were hoping they would. There is a hope that goes beyond our subjective experience of hope. And this early church needed it. They needed hope. Their circumstances were hard. They needed hope that laid outside their circumstances. The second part of that passage is interesting because it says, 
and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come. So the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message. The writer's cautious about identifying here that there are false messages circulating. He even identifies Epaphras as a dear fellow servant in his relationship to the gospel. When you think about what was happening in the spread of the gospel in the early church, the spread of the gospel was entirely reliant on people and their relating of the gospel. It wasn't any kind of unified Bible that we think of now. And we only think of it because of our moment in history. We only think of it as a unified Bible because of our moment in history. These were letters that were being dispersed within the Roman Empire. And for many were considered counter to empire. And so it was a covert spreading. But it needed to be faithful to the gospel in order to be accurate. And so Paul is addressing this idea that Epaphras has been faithful to relate to you the gospel. What is this gospel? It's a gospel based in grace, not in works. It is a gospel that is based in a resurrection that was a physical resurrection and not just a spiritual resurrection. It was a gospel based on Jesus' work on the cross. Today is Trinity Sunday. Last week was Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. This Sunday, in the Anglican Communion, the Episcopal Communion, it is celebrated that, that we understand God in three persons, Father, Son, and the person of Holy Spirit. We take that for granted in many ways because we don't tend to rely anymore on people to communicate the truth. We hear people, and then we go back to Scripture, and we read, and we say, okay, how does what I just heard measure up to what I'm reading here? At least that was the tradition that I was raised in. But this tradition... If Epaphras is not communicating the gospel well, it doesn't get communicated well. And so Paul is doubling down on this is a faithful community of believers. You are a faithful community of believers. He's speaking into their identity. He's speaking into the life that they are living in Christ. How does he know that they are a faithful community? In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit with all of y'all, it's happening all over the world. We're seeing it all over the world. Now, the world at this time would have been the Roman Empire. But what he's identifying here is that this is, I'm not just making a claim hoping <laughs> that I'm right. It's being reported back to us that there's fruit 
there is fruit from what your community is doing. People are experiencing love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit is moving in your midst. And you are experiencing that fruit. And then there are tangible outcomes to that. You're growing. People are coming in to learn how to walk alongside one another within this community better, and then how to go out and walk alongside those that they do life with. The fruit is simple, but it's there, and he sees it. He identifies it. The fruit of grace the fruit of walking in the Spirit. One of the things that's beautiful about Colossians is this identifying of uh, the, basic, the basics of theology that we have out of this early church's faithfulness, a deeper understanding of who the person of Jesus is and how the Spirit works and how the Spirit moves. We have here this idea of the Trinity beginning to take shape. So while the Trinity does not actually take shape um, in, our, in, in our comprehension of the Trinity, um, that came later, um, more like the third century, you see the foundation that begins to be laid um, for, for the uh, formation of the Trinity. Um, we see this in Colossians 15, 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and we see the Trinity taking shape. It's being conceptualized, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The hope about which you have already heard in the true message, this is the hope that all things are being reconciled. That is our hope. That already exists. That reconciliation has actually already taken place. We're just moving towards it a little bit more slowly. The kingdom has already come, and we walk in the hope of that kingdom being made more manifest as we continue to walk. So how do we walk? And now we get to this idea of being filled. We walk filled with the Spirit of God. 
verse 9, for this reason, since the day that we heard about you, for this reason, for all the things that I've just cited, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And here we get a handhold on what it is to be filled with the Spirit. What it is to walk in a way that is worthy. It's not about our works. That's been covered by grace. And it's not some kind of solo effort. This is a community discerning experience. We walk as a community discerning how the Spirit is moving. Because we're discerning how the Spirit is moving in each one of us, we then come alongside one another. We say, hey, I'm hearing this from the Spirit. In stillness, I hear this. When I'm out loving people, I hear this. I feel this when I see God moving in this way. What are you hearing? What are you discerning? How does this look? Wisdom is God-given. Scripture is so clear about that. Wisdom is not something you can drum up. You can drum up a lot of knowledge, and out of that knowledge can come understanding. You put that knowledge together, right? And you get understanding. I understand, right? I am married to an early Americanist, and he's done a lot of work on democracy in America in the early 19th century. Do you see how I had to stop and think about that for just a second? I have to make sure I get it right every time. He's done a lot of work. He's read a lot of books. He read Moby Dick in 24 hours just because he had a bunch of other things he had to get to. He's done a lot of work. But to just read the books doesn't mean that you have understanding. You have to put that information together. Well, what are the implications of what I'm reading? And then he talks with other people who've done similar things, and he gets challenged. Oh, I don't know. I don't know that you read that accurately. This is what was happening in America at that time. I don't, you know. And they go back and forth about it. And I go get another cup of tea. Wisdom is neither knowledge nor understanding. Wisdom comes from God, and God is generous. Don't think that just because you're talking to your neighbor who does not quote-unquote know Jesus, that they're not going to download some wisdom that comes straight from heaven for you. Wisdom comes from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, working among us. How does this work? How does it look? I've been talking with our community recently. I've been getting phone calls, and I have been so encouraged through cups of coffee and conversation to hear how God is moving and how the Spirit is at work. And so I've been asking, how does this look for you? How does it look to start to feel the Spirit moving in you for more? There's like an angst, an anticipation, a sense of, God, how can we make ourselves available for you to do more? How do we do that? 
And I've been asking, how does it look for you? And one person shares, it looks like handing out Otter Pops. And I see that person coming at me two-thirds of the way through their run and at the end of Doomsday Hill. And the smile that lights up their face when I say, free Otter Pop, and they say, thanks, man, I love blue. And they keep going. That's a God moment right there. For some, it's standing at the kitchen sink, and there's been a heaviness. The kids are complaining about having nightmares, and there's just been a heaviness in the house, and they can't put their finger on it, and they don't know. They don't want to over-spiritualize it, but it just doesn't seem right. And a worship song comes on. And standing at the sink, they start to worship, and that heaviness just lifts and it doesn't come back again. Something changes in the atmosphere. For some, it's remembering. It's remembering sitting and leading worship, getting ready to love on the youth who are going to come in, and just opening up hearts and minds to hear from the Spirit of God for these kids. We want to love them. We want to love them well. We don't know where they're at. We don't know what their week was like. We don't know what their day was like. How do we show up for them in a way that is actually present to what their needs are in this moment and the way that the Spirit would move in that space just as they would worship together? The person who identified this to me currently identifies as an atheist but would tell you they still feel like they belong to the people of God. But they were describing this to me three days ago. I still remember that. I remember that feeling of God moving. I'm going to share the thing that blew me away as I was working on this sermon. thought about all of the things that I was able to reference as I dug in and prayed about and researched as I was preparing this sermon. And then you know what struck me? I'm reading about the first century in this early little community in Calicia. And I'm realizing what a privilege it is to be part of a community where we can access the kind of information I got to access as I was preparing this sermon. In the first century, 98% of the population was illiterate. This letter would have been shared by word of mouth. By the 1800s, 40% of men and 60% of women were still illiterate. It's a good chance Jesus was illiterate. What's being addressed here is the faithfulness of the people of God. The Spirit of God made manifest generation 
after generation after generation to us here, now, so that we can know the love of God and so that we can share the love of God. These are lives demonstrating this love. It wasn't a great book. These were letters cobbled together, preserved. It wasn't one big thing that everybody could read individually for themselves and make up a personal decision about what they thought. Those are ideas that have come in the last hundred years. So yes, grab your Bible, read your Bible, read Colossians, it's four chapters long. Read the additional material, dig in when you can't find what the Greek is for something and unpack it and enjoy it. But when it comes to how we walk, we need to understand that it is the living person of Holy Spirit that fills us to be those who have faith, who have love, who extend themselves beyond a subjective hope to an objective hope that is getting handed down to us straight out of the kingdom that we would have that ability to be filled up, to be refilled up. So as we, new community, ask to be filled up, we're asking for the same thing that the first century asked for and every century since. We're asking for the person of Holy Spirit to fill us with wisdom and understanding that we may fully engage our identity that we may move in that identity, loving well and having faith for all the beautiful things that God wants to do in our midst. We're part of that legacy, and we're not done. We have all of this crew coming up, and we want to hand to them that legacy of walking filled, filled up to the brim. I'm going to close this with a benediction straight out of Scripture. If you would like to stand. New community, receive this benediction. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
go and have a great week.